This is our prime suspect, Jason Derrick Brown. Tough to say where he might be headed at this point. I love you. You should see what kind of trail this guy leaves us pretty soon. Just not the Jason I know. He's a con man, Melanie. Plain and simple. I need to speak with Jason. My brother's dead. Kid <laughs> quadruple. I know you know Jason, and I know he's been here recently. We got a little opportunity. <laughs> 80 grand, three days. I'm gonna rob an armored truck, and I want you to help me. That's above your pay grade. Is that a no mommy? <laughs> You're never gonna find him. You sure about that? I'm sure you'll figure something out. Is there any part of that brain of yours that could just tell you to stop? Bitch! He won't get away with this. One man against a loaded gun. Tell me, where is your brother? And do not lie to me. Did you kill that man? I always tell you the truth. Do you know that? How do I look? Deadly. Good answer. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director. You know who I am. I cast for for film, TV, video games, and I'm doing an amazing audible scripted drama for my friend Jim Clementi, who you all might know, who is a writer-producer in CBS The Criminal Minds. And we're crossing our fingers that we're going to close our lead today. Dean, I can't wait to tell you who this is. You're going to you're gonna you're gonna have a reaction when I tell you who it is. But anyway, that's not why we're here. And Dean, say hello to the nice people. Well, uh, yeah, hi everybody. Uh, great to be here. I'm just miffed a little bit that you've left me uh, out of the loop on this one already. Like you don't trust me. Not like we haven't <laughs> known each other for long enough that you could have said, "Hey, by the way, guess who we're casting on this one." But uh, all right, I'll wait another 24 hours. Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending on what time it is. Your listening to this in Podland, or which year it is for that matter. Who knows? You might be listening to this in the future. Spooky, mm-hmm. huh? The nature yeah. of podcasting, Liz. We are so lucky to have our guest here today who reached out to me, and I'm just so amazed that he found me and, and was interested in talking about a, an amazing film that Dean and I had the honor of being able to screen early and it's coming out this week, but I'm going to let him introduce himself to you. Hi, uh, Matthew Gentile, writer, director of American Murder. Thank you for having me, Lisa and Dean. And thanks for watching early and liking it, or at least liking it enough to call it amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I listen, I've cast many, many psychopaths, many, many oh, I know. <laughs> high octane personalities, but your movie is about somebody who is such an amazing character, although he very tragically did take someone's life. And we want to, you know, honor that on this podcast. But you, sure. why don't you tell us, 
What is American Murderer about? Uh, so thank you. Yeah, American Murder is a true crime thriller about Jason Derrick Brown, a charismatic con man who, you know, is a surfer dude from Southern California, charming, good looking guy who ultimately, uh, after years as a petty criminal and con artist, uh, became a FBI top 10 fugitive um, who to this day has eluded capture. Mm. And so the film is about his life and how he became this person this figure, an American murderer. So yes, in a nutshell, it's about, it's about this guy that I'd never heard of, which is odd because I've got so many friends in the FBI. You'd think I would have heard of him, but. (laughs) And I had the same thought, Lisa. When I saw the film, Matthew, I'm like, this guy's in the, on on the top 10 most FBI most wanted right next to Osama bin Laden. How has, how have I not heard about this guy in the true crime arena, even just in the true crime podcast arena? How is this not being covered? And it's almost like he's been hiding in plain sight, which, you know, boom, boom, is yeah, the joke right. because that's what he that's what he could do. That's it's, what he was a, so good at. And we're going to talk an about an amazing the, story. We're going to talk about the cast in a minute. But when did you first hear about this offender? Well, the story goes back a long time. And, uh, you know, what you just said, Dean, is exactly part of what drew me to it in the first place. You know, when I was 14 years old, before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to be an FBI agent. Uh, so I basically wanted to be Ryan's <laughs> character in the film. <laughs> and yeah, I was obsessed with the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitives list. And the crime was committed that put Jason on this list was committed back in 2004. And at that time, I was around 13, 14 years old. I'd go on FBI.gov, as kids do, and I would look up the, the fugitives list and see, you know, if I could help the FBI catch one so I could get the reward money to spend money on stuff with my friends. I was struck immediately because, you know, you look at that list and exactly what you said, Dean, you have Osama bin Laden, you have Whitey Bulger, you know, you have these mean, menacing looking dudes or like really sophisticated criminals, masterminds, and then you have this spiky blonde-haired surfer dude from Southern California. So naturally, something doesn't quite click. He stands out, right, in that crowd. Mm. And so I was immediately, you know, I just remembered the face, you know, and, you know, at the risk of sounding a little pretentious, but cinema's images, right? An image mm, kind of strikes yeah. you. And, you know, Are you Californian, you. by the way? Did you grow up in California? So was that uh, No, the... no, I grew up in okay. Brooklyn, right. Brooklyn, New York. Right, right. It's funny because I'm East Coast born, but I've like, become this West Coast filmmaker since I moved out here, you know, it just happened like that. My films are very Western influenced, but yeah, no, I, I'm from, I'm from New York city, grew up there. And so, you know, I always loved movies and, you know, thought about making them, but you know, it wasn't something that came to later, but anyways, I saw this face. So Jason's face stuck into my brain and I didn't think about it for a long time. Then cut to 14 years later, I've graduated from film school at the AFI, the American Film Institute. Wonderful. I made, I made a couple. Thank you. That was a great, I, Best decision I ever made in my life, I said, besides making American Murderer, was going to AFI. And um, I went to AFI, you know, had a great experience, made two thesis shorts that were doing quite well for me, getting me a lot of exposure. But I was struggling to figure out what that first feature was, you know, and that's a hard thing for directors when you're trying to establish yourself. It's like, you know, what's your first movie? A lot of people kind of ask you, especially if you have a short that does fairly well at festivals and wins awards. That's the only question they ask you is, what's your movie? What's your feature? What's next? You know, and mm-hmm. it's coming up now with people saying, Man, this movie, what's next? What's your next movie? So it's kind of how the business works. It's all, you always have to have something ready. And for me, my first feature, I was struggling to find that right vehicle for me for like, you know, for 
my ideas, my visions, my ambition, all of that. Like what was the right first movie? Um, Cause there is no one way to do it. Every director who's gotten, you know, who's made a lot of movies will tell you they did the first, will tell you a different story. And for me, I realized that if I wanted to make something that felt true to my own voice and, you know, was something I cared deeply about and could be all those things entertaining and commercial, but ultimately have, have that driving it, I would, I was going to have to write it. Um, now I studied directing at AFI. I didn't quite study screenwriting, but I audited classes and I loved writing and I wrote as a kid. I always wrote plays and short stories. I was kind of like, uh, I, I, if I was a, to, me in high school was kind of a Jason Schwartzman at Rushmore. That was kind of me. So I was always putting on plays. <laughs> they were really ambitious and not very good. And, you know, but I always like, loved writing. And so I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really go for it and write a script as my feature. And then literally, as I was thinking, like, what's that first movie? All of a sudden, one day I was storyboarding uh, shoots. I did these really weird branded content gigs after AFI to like pay my bills. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it was like for a dentistry commercial or something weird like that in Texas. And I'm sitting in my hotel, I'm storyboarding and I'm drawing out the images. And I always have something on the TV in the background. Usually it's something like American Greed or CNBC or, you know, something like that. And sure enough, Jason's face pops on the television. Mm. And it had been 14 years since I probably first seen him on that list. And I just became immediately amazed. I was like, what? I was like, this guy's still missing. How did, what happened here? And so I turned the volume up. And I started listening and the interview, the documentary was really interesting. It was American Greed, but the story was covered fairly widely. It was on American Greed, Dateline. You know, there were true crime podcasts that covered it, but not as many as you would think. Um, and I just became immediately transfixed because what I saw was, you know, on the one hand, this had all the stuff I loved in the movie. Like, you know, the film that made me want to be a filmmaker was I'm not the first person, Dog the Afternoon. You know, it was like, you know, I love antiheroes. I love... I love bad guys. I love good guys. I love, I love the gray area. Right. And, um, you know, so I was very into that, but you know, this story immediately struck me because it's like, okay, you have a heist, you know, you have a, you have a criminal, you have someone who's charismatic, but kind of evil, you know, you have all these things that are cool, but what really got me was Jason Derrick Brown was somebody who meant so many different things to so many different people. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what really drew me in and made me say, you know what, I think I've got to write this because it got something in my heart. And ultimately I see the movie, you know, on the surface, yeah, it's a cat and mouse thriller and yeah, you've got a manhunt and yeah, you've got a crime and you've got that in film noir elements, all the kind of shit I love. Mm-hmm. But ultimately at the core, this is a story to be about family. And I think that's why for people who it does resonate with, that's why, because it's, you know, that's, mm. the, I think the emotional truth of it. So right. yeah. you know, we, we Trojan yeah. horse to this family drama. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that completely as well. And I think that the, the performances of of his sister, and we, and of course we'll get to the casting, but uh, of his sister and his brother and his mother, uh, and his relationship with them is very, very interesting. So congratulations on that. But before before we get to that, though, we really need to say that the more important name in this movie is Robert Keith Palomares, because without. Mm. Um, the murder of Mr. Palomares, this offender does not wind up on the FBI's most wanted list because what he did to Robert Keith Palomares was unconscionable, unbelievably yeah. cruel and cold. And can you explain what happened and when it happened? Absolutely. I, I 100% agree. Um, and, you know, the, the point of the film, you know, is to shine a light 
and not shine a light by trying to make him sympathetic or sentimental or anything like that, mm-hmm. but shine a light to make you see a monster very clearly. And that's mm-hmm. Jason Derek Brown. Robert Keith Palmaris is the victim in this case. And what happened to him is an unspeakably awful, horrific tragedy that is so mind-blowingly just terrible what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the movie is, you know, and it, like if there was a way to make the movie without showing that, of course, we all wish there was, but there isn't because the film has to explore fully who Jason Derrick Brown is. So that is why it's in there. And that's why the scene is the way it is. Um, but Robert Kipowers was the victim. The crime was committed on November 29, 2004. Uh, Jason Derrick Brown was planning an elaborate uh, heist on the Monday morning after Thanksgiving. Um, Robert Keith Palmares was an armored car guard, by all accounts, a hardworking, nice guy who went into the theater to pick up the money bag for the, the box office uh, weekend returns for the Monday morning after Thanksgiving. Jason Derrick Brown uh, ran up to him and assassinated him and took off with a bag of $56,000 and has never been seen or heard from since. And it was a, a brutal murder in broad daylight that was very shocking and captivating. And, and really uh, captivated the nation at the time it came it happened because it was just unbelievable that something like this could happen at a place where people mm-hmm. shop, um, you know, in a truly, truly horrifying, traumatizing event for many people. But we really want to send our hearts out to the victims because whenever a film comes out about an offender, uh, there are people who are left behind who are like, it's my family. And so, you know, this happening over a holiday weekend, this guy is just doing his job, picking, working for an armored car company, picking up money uh, after a big holiday weekend, just doing his job. And he's just in cold blood killed. So we definitely want to send our thoughts out to to victims who they want their their loved one honored and in a way you are honoring them by by shining a light on the person who did this and how they were actually able to lead up to it and why this happened that's what you know a lot of times victims families they they want to understand that you know why my loved one you know what 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 could i have done yeah. and there's nothing anybody could have mm. done this yeah. guy was <clears throat> a freight train that was just breaking through the bout and he just wanted what he wanted and he went after it. So <laughs> that's I that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the movie's I, a tragedy, you know, it, it is a tragedy. And, you know, while we are on the subject, you know, we know that today there is a big debate going on about true crime, true crime television, true crime film, the podcast for sure. And yeah. podcasts and, you know, what it means to the victims. And, you know, I haven't been asked too much about, the victim and their family, but I just want to say on record, since this is one of the first times being asked asked about it publicly and speaking about it publicly, that you know the, it was never the intention of the movie to ever exacerbate pain for anybody in the film. You know, again, I was my only intention was to paint a vivid portrait of who this person was because I do think it's a very important story for our time and our culture. That yeah. We live in. So if this film does exacerbate pain for anyone, I do apologize. No, um, no, as a no, filmmaker no. and as an artist, but it's no, a no, hard, no, no, it's I, a hard I, dilemma that true crime filmmakers and authors of all kinds uh, have right now. Um, and so I think it is important that we're sensitive and mindful as we can be. Yeah. I got, uh, Matthew, you, your comments are certainly welcome, I'm sure, for anyone who's suffered as, a, a, as the family of a victim of crime. But it's very timely because this week I got into a, a reasonably testy discussion with someone about this who was criticising the new Joel Edgerton film that's now out in Australia, which is very loosely based on the murder, a tragic murder of an Australian boy called Daniel Morecambe. 
Now, what's unusual about this film is that it um, uh, it it, it uh, describes a process that Australian police used, which was a sting to actually catch the guy, right? So they pretended, they sent an undercover guy in to meet with the suspect and they pretended to be uh, the the part of this big crime gang and they sucked him in and, and he had to meet the Mr. Big of, of the crime family. And in doing so, Mr. Big said, right, now listen, if there's anything in your past that, you know, that there is, you've got to tell me so I can fix it. I'll fix anything. I fix charges. I fix whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. And the guy ends up confessing on tape to, to, to killing the, uh, Daniel, right? And it's a tragic uh, it was a, a rape and murder of a of a uh, of a teenage boy. So this film does not mention the victim's name. Does not. It's not even. If you didn't know it was about the the boy, you wouldn't know that. But plenty of people in the in Australia had their nose out of joint that somebody would make a film like this because it, without the permission and the the parents of the of the child, the Morecambe family are not approving of the movie, but they haven't seen it. And so right. it's it's like it's it's like Nitrum or Nitrum, Lisa, Nitrum when, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, which was about the the movie uh, Matthew. I'm not sure if you've seen it about the offender Caleb, who committed the Caleb Landry the, Jones um, was in it. You may have, it, it kind of came. What was and the went. film called? Uh, it's called Nit Nitrum N I T R A M. It's the it's the first name of the offender's name backwards, and it was about the massacre at Port Arthur, which was the last. It was the massacre in Australia. He shot, he shot and killed forty odd people, and that was oh, the one yeah, where, yeah. Uh, where where Australia went. That's it. No more guns, right? We're out. Yeah. So right. it was a turning um, point in their in their gun laws, right? Yeah. And, and so there was the similar opprobrium to the film from people who had not seen the film. And right. so, uh, what your your comments are very um, uh, uh, relevant because there is a lot of angst by people who are talking about. But my point to this woman was, why is film? She said, oh, well, you know, this didn't get the approval of the family. And I said, but neither have the 200-odd articles that have been written about his death. Right. What about the podcasts? What about the, the magazine articles? What about every other kind of press? What is it about film that, that, that requires this approval by the victims of the family? Why is this medium so unique? Uh, and and I, I actually made notes when I in the scene that you where this murder happens the way that you have written and blocked and shot the film is that you don't see much of the victim because he's just going about his business he is that every man he's just a guy he's gets out of the truck he walks into the cinema he comes out with his bag and what really struck me about the uh, about that scene was that when tom's character when he shoots him he shoots him four times and the guy's clearly, you know, fatally wounded. He stands over him and then it's a reverse and you see uh, his face. You see the face of Jason's face. And then he, you can see to me, it was a threshold moment. And he went, okay, I've gone this far. And he double taps him to the head. So he gives him two more shots in the head after the fall of the body. Now that's a very gruesome thing to describe. But to me, that spoke volumes about a about the character of Jason and the fact that he had reached the point where he could do that. Right. And, you know, and, and right. so I, that, that, that's what I took away from that, that one, there was an everyman guy going about his job, just, you know, be doing his normal job, not expecting it. And then out of nowhere, boom. But also the fact that, that Jason was ready and willing to do that. And he did. Right. And by the way, you know, the scene we're talking about, which is the climax of the movie. And also, I mean, a lot of people who go into this movie know, know that they there know. is him or they just don't know how or what. But right. um, 
you know, that scene we're talking about, you know, a lot of people have commented that it's nowhere near as graphic the way we depict it as you would expect. You know, there is some graphic violence you see, but it's it's an incredibly disturbing scene without any of yes. that. And that was a choice we had made, you know, because for me, I think film is much more powerful when you leave something to the imagination and, you know, you, really it is about the psychology, exactly what you said, is the psychology of Jason in that moment, which is he is crossing a threshold that he can now, now not come back from, right? And, mm. and the film is, in a, in a way, I always saw Jason's journey and Khalil, my cinematographer, was brilliant and she and mm -hmm. I really talked about you know shooting this in a way so that we are really eroding Jason's humanity so if you even look at the color of the film uh for people who want to like watch it more than once you'll notice the first 20 minutes are quite colorful and vibrant and flashy and like even the cinematography is flashy and then the rest of it kind of starts to become bleaker and more stripped away and you know Oh, we're going to get into that. Believe me, you don't even know who you're talking yeah. to here. You don't even know. No, I know you're. No, I know you're the color woman. I know you're into color and background and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, that's the idea. Yeah. We, we, we better, <clears throat> Matthew wallpaper. Just just think about the wallpaper that's in your film. That's all. There's very little background. wall. There's very little wallpaper in the film. Wow, well, just but be ready for it. That's all I'm saying. Not a lot but, of wallpaper. But let's get into it. I'm so so. This is a good time to turn actually to the artistry of the film, and which includes not only your wonderful direction and the score and the production design, but the casting. So your lead that you I, and we talked about this offline, but you were able to get an actor to play the lead of this offender and. The, this actor is somebody who I've only just seen in his performance in Ozark, which is mm. stunning. Stunning. And, too, by it, the way. and, and what's stunning mm. about it for me is it's very unusual for me to see an actor come on screen that I don't recognize that I've never seen before. And he's in his what, late thirties, maybe pushing 40. And I've never, I don't recognize him from anything. And yet I feel like I know him. There's such a vulnerability about him. There's such a right. realness and spontaneity and something about him. And I was like, who is this actor? And it turns out the actor who plays the brother in Ozark is the wonderful Tom Pelfrey. And I don't know him because he has indeed been honing his craft in daytime television on As the World Turns, which is a great playing ground, a great training ground for actors, but it can keep you away from having the baggage that other actors do who you've seen grow up on Grey's Anatomy or whatever. And so when I saw him in Ozark, I was like, oh my God, this actor is incredible. And I was so happy to see him as the lead in your film because he's not a big, huge star yet. He's not an A-list yeah. actor yet, but you got him in this role. And I know that there are some producers who'd be like, wait, he's not ticking the boxes. Where's the overseas market for his name? He's not namey enough. And you very smartly, your casting director very smartly, somebody very smartly said, look, he may not be a name as the, you know, the, the lead, or, but the co-lead, you can certainly get a name in Ryan Phillippe who plays the dogged FBI agent who is pursuing him and trying to track him all over the place. So that was just as far as the casting director's eye, that's just amazing. And then the people that you populate around him are equally, I mean, they're really actors, actors, and I just loved seeing Kevin Corrigan pop in there as the father. I mean, you probably only had him for one day, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, he, he made him, he hey, just. Kevin and Jackie were all 
only one day. I'm sure. Oh, I'm wow. sure. So, and Jackie Weaver, mm. the great Jackie Weaver plays. Yep. And then the brother, Paul Schneider, who is this just tragically underused actor. Those of you listening, you'll know him from Parks and Recreation is, um, what's his name? Oh God, something Brandanovich. Uh, anyway, he was like the love interest for um, Amy uh, Poehler's character. Anyway, he's very underused. <clears throat> Mark Brandanovich, thank you. Um, so you're you're surrounded by just and of the Adina Menzel. Oh my gosh, what a oh, great yeah. turn for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you and, know uh, his his orbit is just surrounded by all these great actors. But let's just talk about Tom's performance. So he's playing this guy. You see him in the beginning. The b- opening scene is so amazing i just found it so Mm. compelling where you see this guy you don't know who he is you just see he's in this red sweatshirt and he's got these frosted tips and he seems very edgy but then he comes into this pawn shop and he gives this big sob story about how he has to pawn his mother's (laughs) ring and his father's um and I just love that that's how we get introduced to him. And then when he he leaves the pawn shop and he's just on this adrenaline high and there's this like self-coaching that he does to himself. It's like, yeah, we can do it. And he's like practicing what he's going to say. And I just thought that was, and Tom makes it so yeah. just compelling. It's this very over-caffeinated performance, mm. but I completely mm. wanted it. I wanted I actually- it. actually. I actually, I actually wanted to bring this up. So Lisa, thank you for that. Matthew, can I ask often opening scenes aren't written as opening scenes, but was, did you write this to be the opening scene? Oh yeah. This, um, (laughs) this, this opening though, I'm so glad to hear you say that. First of all, thank you. It's such a performance to, to Tom and I'll write off his coattails for the rest of my (laughs) career. Um, you know, uh, but and no, it's a compliment to me too. Obviously, and I take it. Um, but, you know, the uh, the opening was very complex because I had many different openings in the in the development of the script. Mm. Um, you know, it was really hard to figure out how the right place to come in on this. Um, you know, but I never wanted to open with the murder. I just never mm. wanted to do that. That mm-hmm. was something. Oh yeah, all, yeah, yeah. A lot of big crime, you know, true great true crime documentaries kind of open with the murder and then they go back. And that was something I was very cognizant that I did not want to do. What really, you know, for me, a good opening kind of follows two things. You know, one is a good opening to me is a microcosm of the whole film in one scene. Mm. So I think of a lot of my favorite films, anything from recently, Whiplash was a great example of that. That opening yep. was the whole movie in one, one swell fell swoop. Uh, Rashomon, another great, you know, Curse was my favorite filmmaker, but that opening scene, mm. you know, where you see them in the rain and they're about to talk and they go and that's the whole movie. You know, so I like when an open or Grapes of Wrath, you know, I, I love when films kind of have the whole movie in one metaphor. So I was trying to do that. And then the other thing I think a great opening does, you know, based on my studying this thing in art form as long as I can, as much as I can, is showing a character doing what they love to do, like, and letting the audience just watch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, another reference for this movie in a movie I'm obsessed with is in my top 10 of all time is the hustler with paul newman mm-hmm. when you, you know when mm. how does the hustler open well he hustles right mm-hmm. <laughs> and you see him mm-hmm. do pull off a hustle and, and get out and uh that was kind of what i wanted to do with this i wanted to start with you know i wanted it to be a bang i wanted it to be an adrenaline rush I, you know exactly what you're talking about like get the audience excited you know when we saw it at newport on saturday night they, they were cheering, right? Mm-hmm. And me and my editor kind of always said to ourselves, like, <laughs> we know that we know from this movie, from the first five minutes that we were showing someone if they like it or not. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's very much like the movie kind of almost five minutes will tell you. Like, 
you know, five minutes in, you're not enjoying it. Like I promise you, you just turn it yeah, off. You may, you <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, no, that's right. Um, and so I really wanted it to have all that. And I toyed around with different ways of doing it, but ultimately, and after writing 99, I think it was 90 something versions of that opening scene. Wow. I just really couldn't get it right. I was trying so hard. I tried all these lab different cons he did. Some of them were like way campier and funnier and that was wrong. Mm. Some of them were much more violent or like, I think I wrote one versions where like the thugs shoot the pawnbroker. <laughs> the pawnbroker has a shotgun. Oh, and like, right, right, right. Bam, 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 bam. He like got out and like, you know, that. And that's where having great producers helps because, you know, uh, Kevin, Carissa, Gia, those are my three main producers on this film. They really worked a lot with me to really rein this film in and, and help me kind of, you know, it's really rare that as a first time director working on an indie film and indie budget and all that, that you get producers who are actually just trying to help you get your vision. But that's what mm. these guys were, you know, and we don't know, you know, producers mm. and directors will always have disagreements. Name them. Uh, who are they? Please tell us their name. Uh, Kevin Madison, Carissa Buffell, Gia Walsh. Uh, the three of them really stuck their necks out for me, got the financing, made this movie happen and believed in me. You know, they believed in a first time director. And there's a lot of people here who did because you look at Tom Pelfrey, you know, he yeah. was, when we went out to get him, uh, you know, he had just like, I, so the story about Tom came into the movie was, you know, it was March, 2020. That's when we went to cast the film. Oh God. You know, we had lists and oh, Tom, oh. Tom wasn't on my radar yet. Um, mm. I had actually, I found out later I had known his work and I knew it was quite good. I'd see him in some theater in New York. That's about things. But at the time I didn't really know his, his stuff. And then April comes around and, you know, we're not getting anywhere. It doesn't, we don't know where the movie's going to happen, but I'm just, hold up in my apartment storyboarding the whole thing acting like we're going to film tomorrow yeah um, working with my team you know keeping them you know, i was kind of like ryan's character i was like we're gonna get him we're gonna get it we're gonna right, right right and you know keeping morale up by having us meet on zooms and whatever and you know we have offers going on in the background but we have no idea when someone will say yes because this movie was always contingent on who's going to play jason Derek brown sure and you know tom came into my radar april 2020 ozark comes out and my producer, Gia Walsh, calls me and she goes, hey, Matthew, um, are you watching Ozark? And I said, no, I, I, I've never seen it. And she's like, well, OK, like you need to first of all, like what's wrong with you? It's the best show. It's the most popular show. Like, why are you <laughs> I don't know, Gia. I watch TCM and Criterion all day. OK, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and she's like, just watch Ozark. OK, good. will you watch it? Please. She's very like New York you know, <laughs> Italian woman, very like, like, Matthew, let's watch it. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, okay. I'll watch it tonight. And then I get another call from my brother who ends up doing the score of the film. And he says, Hey, cause he had read the script and he goes, Hey, uh, have you watched Ozark? This guy, Tom Pelfrey's. Like, <laughs> like, this is suspicious. And then another friend calls and says two hours later named Neil, who's a talent agent at UTA. And he says to me, Hey, uh, you know, Ozark, this guy, Tom's amazing. He's perfect for Jason. So I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know what Gia probably talked to them, but I'm going to go and watch uh, the show and see, see what I think. And, you know, I used to act in high school. I was very, I was as obsessed with acting back then as I was at filmmaking. Fortunately, I have more aptitude for filmmaking. I was a terrible actor, but I loved it. I loved the art of it. I loved theater as a kid. Mm -hmm. I loved high, I loved it in high school. As every play, I was that kid, the theater geek. Uh, that's why I was so familiar with the Dina's work. And, right, um, right, right. I was mm. a total theater nerd in every musical. I was that obnoxious kid um, who told everyone else to be off book. That was me. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't changed. Um, and I saw it and I used, so I did this acting program at Carnegie Mellon when I was 16. And this teacher used to say, she was a tough, tough teacher. She taught a class called audition. It was intimidating. She was like, she goes, listen, guys, my kids, they know 
And she was like the head of drama at Carnegie Mellon. She was like a pretty active. She was those, those directors, when you walk into that room, they know in the first five seconds if you're right. It's really true. Yes. And me and the acting students were like, yeah, right. Like, what is she talking about? That's crazy. How could you know in five seconds? You have the whole monologue. What are you, what are you talking about? Right, right now. We're not going to get to that. Yeah. We were like, Jill's crazy. What is she talking about? But when I turned on Ozark and I watched Tom, it was literally that in five seconds, I was just like, oh my God, he's the guy. And every other time a name came up, an idea came up. I would just always kind of be like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let me think about it. But when I saw Tom, it was like a lightning bolt moment of this guy, this guy has to be it and we have to get him. And so I called, that's interesting. I called Gia and I said, okay, do whatever you got to do to get this guy. Do you want me to write a letter or whatever? And I'd written letters to other actors past, so they were like, "All right, Matthew, maybe stop the letters. Let's just let them your script." No, but then, that's very, <laughs> very common, and sometimes it is a way to connect with them. That, that makes sense. Yeah, no, yeah, they, yeah. Help yeah. They, they, they they get help, but yeah, for me, it's funny because I have a friend, Julian Higgins, who just did his movie. Um, he also went to AFI God's Country, and he was saying he wrote like a great letter to Thandie Newton that got her in. Uh, in my case, I just don't think my letters were that good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I stopped it's, writing letters. It's the material, one hundred percent. It it's, is. They yeah, have yeah. to. They have to see themselves, especially on an indie. You know, with kind of a bare bones situation, they have to yeah. love it. Including the your big- casting, your casting director has to love it too to fight for you too. Yeah. You know, for for those months. Yeah. Um, I know that and, I don't want. And, and, yeah, sorry, Lisa. Oh, and I finish your thought, Liz. Go ahead. I was going to say, we're running out of time, and I really wanted to get to so many things. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no. I, I just wanted, before we leave. Sorry, I rambled. No. I just wanted to say, uh, Matthew, that that opening scene, as you said, it does encompass the movie. There's really everything in the character is in that scene, right? It's right. like it's like his sob story. And then when the car pulls up the front, he changes gears in like in a second. He, right, he converts into, okay, give me the money now. Give me two for two. Two for two, yeah. come on, do you have a back door, right? And it reminded me in some ways of, um, for some reason, I flashed on Uncut Gems, Adam yeah. Sandler, that intensity about not Absolutely. just because he's in a pawn shop. So there was, there was um, echoes of that. But throughout the film, the other film that I kept thinking of, especially with the father's character all the time, was Catch Me If You Can, mm-hmm. which is based on another true crime uh, a fraudster and 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 just the way that he's pounding on the wheel as he's leaving um uh, the uh, the pawn shop i was just again i just went boom and in my head i just saw jesse at the end of breaking bad you know when mm-hmm. he the, literally the last almost the last scene of breaking bad when he's in yeah. the car and he's driven through the, and he's getting away with it and so the joy of 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 the, that character of jason's character of going from sob story changing gears to doing this and then getting away and then just the joy of pulling off the con all yeah. in that but, first opening also, scene was brilliant not just the con but matthew something you get that's so right i mean it's right out of the psychopath's handbook the way that he's coaching himself mm. because psychopaths don't experience empathy they have right. to practice empathy they have to look at themselves and they're like am i smiling right is this how people smile is this how people nod when they're listening mm. to someone because they don't inherently right. know how to do and they don't fucking care how to do that so they have to learn all of their cues and so that was so great about your direction and tom's performance is that you see him trying to do that and so and this is why i wish tom were here because there are some scenes um like when he's crying uh, about something he's he was talking to somebody on the phone he's crying about something or even when he's he's talking to his girlfriend's son in mm. that moment he, you believe him and i wonder does he, in that moment does he believe it 
like if one of my mm, FBI yeah. profilers said, like, is he is he feeling those feelings in that moment or is it just 100 completely just acting? It's, yeah. it's, just, it's just so interesting. One well, of I think that's what actually makes was an artist so fast. Yeah, yeah. So Matthew, one of my notes was that the uh, that scene with his son, where where he says, "Oh, you have a son, right?" So he's grooming her for the fact that, "Oh, I can't believe you know, you'll be old enough to have a son." And she pulls out the photo, and he looks at he looks at the at, at the photo of the son, and he says, "Oh, he's so handsome, so handsome." You know, <laughs> you've written that repeating where where he says it once, and then he pauses for effect, and he says it again. It's well, just I, a, oh, it's I got, one line, but it's brilliant. I got to give Pelfrey credit for that because he, for all of it, because he really, you know, that's why he's such a, I think he's such a great actor because he really understood Jason on a on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. And it was the first question he asked me because, you know, he was questioning, I think, when he was first, you know, deciding whether or not he was going to do this movie. Because we have to remember, he was the heat he had for Mozart was tremendous. He, he we were making an offer to him. We were the little fish in the pond. Like, yeah, sure. you know, we're this little movie. It's a first time director. It was a risk. Thank God his agent loved it, and and he then loved it, and they decided. Yeah, to do but it. he probably wasn't getting lead offers. He was probably getting high level offers for supporting. I yeah, I can't speak but, to that, but but he, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It was but, it was competitive, and you know he and I was very lucky that he chose that he chose mm-hmm, this movie, and then mm-hmm. the rest of the cast we all got because all of them wanted to work with him. They were like, yeah. "Oh my god, this is an amazing actor. Let's get in on this. Let's get in on. Let's join the party, right?" And um, but yeah, he would really pick up things like that, like the like the he, you know, because in the in the script it just says he's a handsome kid. But Tom has that inflection on him and gets it and read, you know, and he feeds off the other actors so well. Yeah. And some of the, it was a tightly planned film, but there was a good amount of improv where Tom would really like come up with some of my favorite lines in the film, like the Buffalo Bills line. He that was completely improvised or like mm. the John Wayne thing because he was feeding off the guy, right? Who was right. <laughs> like mocking and he was kind of using actually Meisner technique with like the repetition, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, and like That's- flipping it and. He's really brilliant. And he's such a, what I love about him too, is he's such a physical actor that, you know, mm-hmm. I had a lot of my shots were planned on longer lenses, you know, and then when like in the storyboards and like when I was really getting out down to the nitty gritty, but Khalil and my DP and I realized with Tom, we actually had to widen our lenses and our frames out because he was doing so much in the frame and moving around so much that we had to get wider. And, right. And, uh, well, it's great. You have it. I love the scene where he's skateboarding and he's got all the kids skateboarding mm. with him. He's like the Pied Piper. But before- and, and by the way, that's what it says in the script. Oh, and it, it was really funny. This is a good story. I, I'll do it quick. But um, the Pied I said in the script, he skates with the kids behind him like the Pied Piper. And, you know, when I'm shooting it, I forgot I'd written that. And Adina was there that day because we're filming all the stuff with her. And she's mm. she stops by the monitor. And she sees it like on my neck. And she goes, oh, wow. She goes, it's like he's the Pied Piper or something. <laughs> And I go, I look at her and I go, you get it. You get it. Yeah. Oh my God, Dina, you get my vision. And she just laughs and like hits me on the shoulder and goes, goes in the you know, script, but, silly. But, but, but the, fa- the favorite, the favorite, actually, the favorite shot of, for me of that scene is the, is the one behind the mums all looking on approving. <laughs> they're, they're just, they're so trusting. It's like, oh, look at him. You know, yeah. it's so great. It's, it's, it's a, it's a testament oh, to his psychopathy that, that, yeah, because that's how he does it. It's like, it's like that other, the opening scene is good uh, as it is, uh, uh, not to rank them, but the other one where he takes the call in bed after he's been in bed with Adina uh, uh, and, and he's like, oh, I've just got to take this call. And then 
the bullshit that he just spins as he goes down to the basement about 9 11 and <laughs> my brother and this shit happens to me and i'm just i'm gobsmacked going oh my god like yeah. how does someone do this it would be exhausting. The thought occurred to me: if I had to do that on a on a daily basis, I would be wrecked in a week. It's I would exhausting, be, I, but I, I think that be, he yeah. he fed off of it. I wanted us to get to Adina because we got to talk to Adina. I mean, come on, yeah. you have Adina Menzel playing the love interest, so he's you know, for those of you who haven't seen it, we don't want to spoil everything, but you know, you're seeing this offender executing a whole bunch of cons, cons here, cons there. He's trying to get money here, trying to get money there, and he comes across. Um, his real estate agent and he charms her and oh my gosh there's this scene of them and it's a very quick scene it's only a few seconds where there's they're doing dishes together <laughs> and mm. i got so hot and fleshy just watching them they were just <laughs> just the way that he just kind of looks at her and she's looking at him i mean it was so palpable and i just love that kind of chemistry i mean it's so fantastic yeah. when when that can happen and the other thing i wanted to mention was i really hate flashbacks i feel like they're just just this huge lazy passive crutch but oh my goodness you use flashbacks in a way because we really do have to see you know why Ryan Philippi is chasing this offender and it's got a flashback to where he's come from and it kind of goes all over the place, but it's just the right pace. And they felt very electric. Like the flashback came at just the exact time that I needed to know something about where we are in the script. And so you have flashbacks with him, with his, with his brother, which I mean, and his father and his sister and, and just every relationship that Tom Palfrey is in, it's just so wonderful. I mean, the, the relationship between him and Paul Schneider as brothers uh, and the sister. I mean, there are so many just great turns. And as actor, a lot of actors listen to my podcast, you know, watch those scenes, watch those actors who really know what they're doing with moments. And they're doing great things with the dialogue, but they're doing even more things with what's not being said. Um, I just think it's it was just fantastic. Matthew, was Thank it you. conscious? Was it conscious in your head when you were writing that flashback scene with the dad? Were you thinking at all of "Catch Me If You Can" and the way that, uh, which I'm, I'm assuming you've seen the film or read the book? Oh yeah, though. oh yeah. No, I love "Catch Me If You Can." Right. Um, so, so, so I'm, that, a huge, so I'm that, a huge Spielberg fan. Um, you know that scene. I don't know if it was specifically inspired by "Catch Me If You Can." I mean, the dad. You know that scene's been inspired by what you know by accounts of what the father was like, which was he was a con man you know, who kind of, you know, was involved in illicit, illegal activities, like taking the kids on fancy trips to hotels and leaving them in the car while he picked up money from drug dens and gamblers and, you know, just somebody who kind of lived on the dark side, right, of life mm -hmm. yeah. and exposed his kids to that and really coached and taught Jason, you know, and, and manipulated yes. these kids. And yes, so very much. The scene I felt was, and I agree with you, Lisa, I normally hate flashbacks myself or you know, find them lame or a crutch. Um, but, you know, I found that the way this story ultimately worked was, you know, because the script kind of tells you how to write it, right? You, you, you force your ideas, you try, you do your best on your first drafts, you know, they always come out bad and they're not working. And then you got to rewrite it and figure out how, how to make this thing actually work. And what I found was that, you know, Ryan's character, I think part of why Ryan, I love Ryan's performance, which is almost, he kind of grounds you and he's your way in as the audience, he takes you through these different chapters, kind of like, you know, Joe Cotton and Citizen Kane. He's got kind of wide, he's walking you through the different 
areas, right? And he's taking you this person, that person, that person, that person. And he has a view of Jason, but they all have views of Jason, right? The mm. sister, the brother, the mother, mm. right? Jackie Weaver could see right through him. And she's his worst Oh, nightmare. totally. You know, the yeah, con- but she, that's but, the con but, man's but, worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah. But it also, I mean, she's seeing him, but she's also thinking of straight away of her husband. She goes, I'm imagining that she's just going, he is his father's son. And then, you know, that's that's exactly what Jackie said to me on set. You know, yeah. You know, she was so good and such a, I mean, they all were, but like she was such a pleasure to work with. And, and, you know, there was uh, one take where she just like really got into him. And I was like, and she was like, she was like, is that too much, my dear? And I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> I was like, no, 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 that's great. I loved it. I go, I felt your anger. And she was like, well, I just can't help but seeing my ex-husband. And, you know, and I was just like, I love it. Um, and she just, yeah, she, mm. she played it so well. But, so- but you, you're right. The fact that it's a, it's sort of a, it's a con man film, but it's, the, well, sorry, it's, it's a movie. Of, uh, it's a film about family disguised as a, as a film about a con man, because it's the relationship yeah. between all of them. And so that flashback is far from self-serving. It's not self-serving at all because there you see the father. Right. Literally giving money to the boys and telling them to go and, you know, have fun, do whatever and right. nothing for the daughter because she, she, because she, he's not happy with her. And so that sets right. up that whole dynamic between them as adults. It's like, uh, it's exactly. Really Cause you know, we're thing. not trying to make you like Jason Derrick Brown. It's not the intention. Oh no, that's not, that's some, not some, no, is some it people, you know, asshole. yeah, it's total as like, we're not trying to make you like him, love him or hate him. We're trying to make you understand him. Right. Mm. And see him for who he is. That's the goal of the film, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And people, I find some people do like him root for him until they see what he did. And then they're like, Oh, fuck this guy. Right. And I've had, oh, no, surely. I've, surely I've had all kinds him, the, of reactions, but you know, the it's, scene on the, the scene on the boat alone, just, just the footage <laughs> on the boat. It's, it's like, if you can be, if, if you can find that character sympathetic, I, I looked at that. He's such a classic asshole. It's, he reminded me of Martin Shrekley, the farmer bro, or, totally. you know, yeah, one of those bro absolutely. kind of guys, someone well, like you that. Know, it's like more like. Well, totally and he was also, you know, the way he was filming himself, you know, in 2003 reminds mm. me of how a lot of people film themselves today, right? On mm. Instagram or social media, there's like this idea of you put your own image out there and a narcissism, right? And, uh, Mm-hmm. you know and like look we all have to do it we live in a world of social media i post you know i have to post three times a day to promote my film right <laughs> and you guys do for your podcast and your projects but it's interesting you know how he was doing this kind of before it was a thing jason i was an influencer before such a thing existed or a youtuber right or whatever it is so yeah mm-hmm. no it is it is fascinating but there is something about the way that you, you captured this early aughts sort of party coke girls i mean even th- i know that we've always had that from time memoriam but there's something just that you captured the period of that maybe it's the th- i'm obsessed with the frosted tips i don't know why but yeah. um there's oh, for sure just the wardrobe and just it just well happened. i remember you know because i was i was 13 14 when it was the i was a teenager in the early aughts right so it's a mm. familiar time to me and there is kind of I think it's almost like becoming the new 80s. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, it definitely yeah, has, yeah, a, yeah. has a callback to that. Yeah, um, yeah. Talk to us about the music. I mean, the music struck me right from the beginning. I thought, I think I wrote a note here. Oh, wow, it's the slamming opening score. So yeah, talk to me about, I know you. your brother did the music and what was the concept and what did he use? Um, you know, my brother, so this is his first film score. It's my first feature, his first film score. Um, he actually is trained as a pianist and conductor. Mm. Um, and he really, you know, he, he actually wasn't, <laughs> I'll even say this, he, he wasn't the first person who was going to 
do the score for this movie. Uh, there was someone else before him. He was going to help orchestrate, you know. And what had happened was the person who was set to do it for him had just couldn't do the project, ended up leaving. And my brother actually got to kind of step in. But the way he did it was he'd actually created all these cues, kind of like thinking this might happen because we all saw it possibly happening. And uh, I snuck them into the to the cut and the producers heard the opening. The first thing he did, because the opening actually, I had never intended any music. I wanted it to play quiet and with sound design. And I initially, when I was filming it, I saw it as a quieter film. Mm-hmm. Like No Country for Old Men was a big reference. We films like that where you, know, you don't have too much score. I didn't think it was going to need as much score as it ended up needing. But when I saw the early cuts, I was like, oh, this thing's going to need music more than I anticipated. Because Jason's a vibrant character, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he needs that. So... I really wanted to make sure that, you know, my brother actually was like, I disagree with you. I think the opening does need music. And I was like, okay. I was like, try something. If I like it, I'll put it in. If I don't, I won't. And I heard it and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And he called the piece the (laughs) overture because my my favorite film is Lawrence of Arabia because with an 11 minute overture. So I was automatically nervous. I was like, oh no. I was like, he didn't do like a 10 minute overture. But no, he played music that he actually built off the sounds so the beginning sounds we have was like a boat horn and a plane and a helicopter and wow. he, he turned that into a, a i'm gonna get the note wrong but a b minor i think or a g minor he'll kill me when he hears this uh, <laughs> but he turned that into a g minor and he made music off of that and so he really just got my brother he, he's a very innate he's a very talented artist you know he played concert halls all around the world still does uh you know conducts and plays piano and that's his that's what he mostly does but he really, you know, his learning curve was the technology. Fortunately, my editor, Matt Allen, uh, was also the score producer on the movie. And they worked really closely together to make sure that the music was tense, exciting, vibrant. And it kind of has like, the music actually is kind of sort of in two halves. The first half is a little bit more in like the electronic Cliff Martinez realm of things. Whereas the second half is more orchestral. Um, mm-hmm. You know, especially like the last two reels of the movie are more like, you know, bomb, right? you know, with instruments and, and and cellos and, you know, trombones and things like that. And my brother really was, you know, we, he was, we were so lucky. He brought all these amazing musicians uh, who he's worked with in his orchestras to record in their apartments on separate microphones. Oh my gosh. In the so crazy. I mean, mm. it was quite a Herculean effort because he had to do 27 pieces of music for the movie. Oh my gosh. I think it was three months. It was really intense but he did an incredible job i think and I'm well glad we're, we're gonna wrap it up because you've given us way so much of your time i'm so grateful to you but i wanted to ask but, you what, but, what is it yeah uh, yeah i have one last one too i can't, right. I can't let him i can't let him get away I have one too, one so more, hurry up, tell one him. all right okay first of all, I'm, uh, yeah as, no if you guys need more don't i mean I'm as, cool. as, as an aussie matthew um ha, what was it that drew to drew you to um first looking at and indeed casting jackie weaver uh, well, I've always been a fan. Um, you know, I, I I love her work. I mean, it's crazy to think of how fast her body of work is. Um, you know, I mean, Picnic and Hanging Rocks, one of my favorite books. I love Peter Weir. So, uh, you know, oh, wow. Okay. That, that, that yeah. far. So it's not oh, just yeah. Animal Kingdom. Peter Weir. Now, yeah, Peter Weir is one of my favorite directors. Um, one of the reasons I became a filmmaker for sure. Um, mm. And uh, so I, I love Australian cinema. Um, I mean, it's not the. And I love Stork too. I, you know, Jackie's just a she's a key figure. 
Um, wow. I do love you're blowing my mind that you're naming <laughs> these films because most Americans, well, most Americans and most even American people in the film industry would would think of her after Animal Kingdom, which was well, she sort of she's had a career in two halves. There was like pre Animal Kingdom and post Animal Kingdom. Yeah, and she's phenomenal in that for sure. She's phenomenal in silver linings. I mean, she's playbook. She's she's excellent in everything she sets foot in. Mm. Um, so uh, the fine thing is, man, you asked me what made me cast Jackie Weaver. I was getting notes on the script at one point, and the producers again is a story of how great producers push you she they were like they were like matthew you know you gotta like you could, if you really get this mom scene right if you really write this mom scene out of 10 we could get jackie weaver and i was like you guys are fucking crazy She's never gonna do this movie a two-time oscar nominated actress doing a like indie movie from a first-time director which she's worked with david o russell and peter weir and like yeah oh she's gonna work with matthew gentile now and where like, did you shoot on. her where, where was she when you shot her uh in utah we shot we shot the she, whole movie in no, utah. she went to utah for that scene she did wow she did. Wow. loved the script and you know wow. and we got on so well she was so cool charming easy to work with funny mm-hmm. self-facing you know she just was really really a treasure on tour the other day in an interview we called her an american treasure and me and ryan had to tell her she's <laughs> an australian treasure um but yeah no she's just a phenomenal actress and yeah I was, I was i was lucky to have her is the answer to that but well um, i mean wow. you can definitely tell that shot in you know i i think i asked you did you really shoot in utah because the the landscape is amazing but i thought maybe some of the interior scenes you know if you only have somebody for a day you're not you know making kevin corrigan go to utah but maybe you did no nope, we la- made them all we made them oh all. oh my come. god i love it I and love my it. producer g i kept saying it she kept going matthew all these people are flying to utah for your movie <laughs> <laughs> that's true no pressure so as you're up, I just have like three questions you can answer all together that what must it be like to be shooting a film where the offender may still be alive, may still be out there. Mm. You're shooting about his life. Do you think right. he will see this movie if he's still alive? And what do you think he'll think of it? Well, you know, so Movie Maker just released an article today um, of our screening. And the article headline is... Uh, Jason Derrick Brown would have notes. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> I, 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 I think he would have notes, you know, um, and they, they took that from me. I said that in my interview. So, you know, I think Jason would have some notes. You know, I think he would um, probably have tweaks because it's his life and he knows better than me. Um, I'm sure. But, you know, Ryan said, and I agree with him at the inter- at the same interview that, you know, we think definitely his ego, I think, would be stroked by having a movie about him made. Yeah, Your answer, by the way, if he if he has notes, Matthew, your answer is, hey, show up and uh, we'll uh, we'll listen right, to you. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, but yeah. And as far as him watching it, you know, look, I mean, it's possible he's alive. It's possible he isn't. It's possible he's anywhere. I don't you know, I kind of have this feeling you know, that we may never know what happened to like D.B. Cooper or a lot of unsolved mm. mysteries. Um, or his you know, father, for that matter. Or his father, right, right. The same thing. So my feeling is wherever he is, I think, you know, if he saw it, I'd like to think that we, you know, that he would see some truth in the movie, um, you know, and see that it was an entertaining film and whatnot. Um, but I don't know. You know, I can't speak mm-hmm. for Jason because, you know, even my film, you know, my film's a true crime drama, but it's true crime fiction. It's not true crime documentary. It's not true crime yeah. podcast. Or, you know, it's, this is true crime fiction. I made things up. I dramatized things. I'll say that for anyone who's portrayed the film, that there were made things I made up and absolutely. And I'm not going to deny or say that, but, you know, I, I did a lot of research into the subject and I did as much as I could or as I felt was necessary. 
Um, but I think that, you know, when you make a movie about someone who's alive, it's a little, there's, there's an unpredictable factor to it for sure. Mm. Um, you know, you don't yeah. really know that. Yeah. Anything could happen. People keep asking me if he gets caught, is there going to be a sequel? Um, (laughs) i don't control that by the way um when you sell your script in your movie you don't you don't control that anymore but um you know i think that uh i think the movie what we set out to do at the end of the day was you know again paint an honest picture of who this guy was you know not necessarily accurate but truthful Mm. and so you know that's what i was um yeah, I think that's yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's funny cool. at, at at the start of the film when the super comes up that says based on a true story, and you just mentioned you earlier in the interview you mentioned the Coens, and of course infamously they put that up at the start of Fargo, and right, and it's not it's not at all. So every time I see that now, <laughs> I just have this little chuckle. Yeah, about, and uh, oh, Texas Chainsaw, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre does that too, oh, right? Really? Where they like, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they did that like thing where they said like this really happened, and they were saying that was a response to Nixon mm. and the, how they felt lied to by that era. It's right, interesting. Right. Um, well, yeah. Everybody, please go see American Murderer. Mm. It's going to be in your theaters this weekend, and it's going to be. Where can they check it out after that? Do we know what platform it's going to be on? Yes, it'll be uh, theaters October twenty first, as you said, and then on streaming. It'll still be in theaters, but then it'll also go on streaming on October 28th. So you can rent it anywhere, iTunes store, Amazon prime, uh, you know, Google, YouTube, Xbox, PlayStation, cable, <laughs> anywhere you can rent a movie, you know, an old well, an deal. well, it's an absolute uh, education yeah. in performance and screenwriting and a first time. It certainly does not feel like anybody's first time film. And Tom Pelfrey no, could have chemistry with a broken toaster. So please go, <laughs> go see him uh, do his magic. I am Ma- going to, I'm going to text him right now and tell him you said that. Uh, <laughs> and, and by the way, thank you, Matthew for uh, bringing Ryan back to to the screen and giving him such a such a great role too it was a, it was a pleasure to see oh, I mean, I, not, I, not like he hasn't been working I know but it was just yeah, he works the, he works all the time it. they all I do know, but I was like wow but, that's yeah. awesome Ryan's phenomenal and honestly thank God for Ryan because thank God for all of them because without this cast you know I don't get a first-time director doesn't get a shot uh, like mm. this absolutely you know, so. can you shout out your casting director for us please absolutely she's also phenomenal um patricia deserto was our casting director and she did an amazing job um you know i worked with her at length and she's cast so many great movies from blue jasmine to like mm. countless others yes and she, she, she helped me absolutely land the perfect cast and yeah. I'm very oh, actually, I just realized looking at this cast, you need to prepare yourself for your next movie to be just maybe a little bit like look out for disappointment because <laughs> I know. Look at look at the cast yeah. on your first feature. It's, it's gonna like, be like the citizen Kane from of, here. Yeah, it's, wow. the citizen, it's the citizen Kane of first movie casts. Uh yeah, no, they were yeah, we got really lucky. Um, you know, I mean I'm so glad to all of them. And yeah, you better write a two-hander next time. Yeah. <laughs> all right my dear <laughs> good luck with it and thank, thank you, you so much so much matthew, thank you, matthew. lisa dean so thank much. you so much all righty for now Pleasure. this thank is so much casting signing out there.